welcome to the Big Kids Book Club. A podcast about all things fictional, from middle grade to young adult. So sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Hey, 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 welcome back to another episode of the Big Kids Book Club. My name is Marcus and I'm your host and joining me on the show this week, we have the author of over 50 books, the latest of his historical fictions, Now Whenever and Mohinder's War, brought us a wonderful but very underrepresented voice from the past and his latest one is set to do the same. Uh, Please welcome to the show, Bally Rye. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Bally. How are you doing? I'm very well, how are you? Very good, very good. Now, as this is your first time to the book club, it's always lovely to get to know our authors a little bit. So do you want to tell us um, why you want to become an author and just give us a little glimpse into your journey up to where you are now? Yeah, I um, I started as a reader at the age of sort of five. Uh, my parents were Indian immigrants, so didn't really speak English, didn't read and write it. Um, and my dad started taking me and my sister to the library um, every Saturday morning. Um, so in so with starting infant school and into juniors, I was reading lots of nonfiction. And then at junior school, a teacher started reading as James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl. So that was the first we had story time at the end of every day, you know, 15, 20 minutes. Um, and I absolutely fell in love with fiction because of James and the Giant Peach. So I, it was Roald Dahl to begin with. And then my my writing hero, the person that made me want to become a writer, my role model was a lady called Sue Townsend, who was from Leicester like me. Um, and she wrote a series of books about a character called Adrian Mole that I loved. Um, so she really, really inspired me to become a writer. She was my big writing hero. And an American author called S.E. Hinton, um, who wrote, famously wrote The Outsiders. Um, and then literally everything I've ever done, it's everything I've ever read that I love has inspired me to want to write my own stories. Yes. And right, you have. You've written uh, many stories over a career spanning almost 20 years now. Um, and it's it's interesting, actually, that the most recent novels have taken on a very historical sort of feel to them. Uh, I mentioned a couple of them in the introduction, uh, Now and Never, A Dunkirk Story and Mohinder's War, bringing us sort of uh, a window into the what actually happened, sort of realistically, a sort of underrepresented viewpoint of World War II away from your standard sort of British squaddy or um, any of the sort of more traditional, I guess, Hollywood-esque um, yeah. lenses. What was the inspiration for them? Because both Now and Never and Mohinder's War both have a very similar feel, but they're very different stories. Yeah, um, you know, there's the whole thing around diversity that's become kind of more important um, and diversifying the history curriculum. So one of the things we talked about a lot is how the books are used within school. So even with fiction, when you're teaching World War II history to key stage two um, junior school kids or even into secondary, um, the books that are used are primarily about the same types of people from the same types of backgrounds. So, and there was loads more people involved. We know because of the British Empire, British colonialism, that there were, you know, for a, for example, one and a half million Indians volunteered for World War II. It's still the largest volunteer force in history, and not just soldiers, you know, supply troops, like I wrote about, um, cooks, nurses, doctors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I'd already done that. Um, 2006, 2007, I started on a book called City of Ghosts, which was about World War One. But the, the, you know, it's it's a great book. I love it. But the problem with City of Ghosts was I don't think the the world was quite ready for that level of diversification then, because that's also about Indian soldiers in World War One, and there were again there were 
tens of thousands of them um, in battles, in, in every battle from the first major one, Neuf Chapelle, um, 1914 into 1915. So I would, I, I kind of knew they were there, but I didn't know enough. And then a really good friend of mine, Tony Bradman, who's a fantastic writer in his own right, you know, writes brilliant historical novels, um, sent me a photograph of some muleteers, uh, so for now or never, and said they were led by a guy called Captain Ashdown, who was the father of a famous politician called Paddy Ashdown. Um, and that got me intrigued and I started thinking about it and I started looking into it. Um, and the more you read into it, the more stories you find, you know, there are so many um amazing stories that remain untold that are set around the Caribbean, around countries in Africa, you know, Egypt, the former Palestinian mandate, uh, you know, it's across the world. The British were across the world and wherever they were, there were local people who joined British forces and participated in British campaigns, World War One, World War Two, etc. Um, and everything in between who just their, their voices have just disappeared. So the, the appeal was bringing those voices back and introducing them um, to the to the readership um, who mostly will not have heard of them. Absolutely. And you said there that uh, a lot of it is to deal with the school curriculum and obviously bringing those voices to the school curriculum. How's the reception been? Obviously, I know, I don't know if you've been able to do any sort of virtual visits over the last year or such, but um, I mean, I absolutely loved both of the books. So I wonder how the, the kids in school are, are sort of responding to them. Well, for the 15 months that I did only virtual events, um, probably 80% of the events I did, I did loads, uh, were around now or never, and then Mahinda's War. So the reception with schools has been huge with staff, with, you know, um, educators within school senior management, but also with the pupils who are, the, you know, let's face it, the most important thing. Um, they're the readers, they're the ones that looks aimed at, and the response has been absolutely brilliant. Um, I've not, not wasn't surprised by it, but I was not, not that they enjoyed the stories. I think both stories are quite strong. I think it was the reception with, within the schools and the please, 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 can, can we have an hour and can you talk to our kids about the inspiration? So it's been a really, really wonderful response and, you know, really, uh, really pleased with it. Talking about the inspiration there, uh, it really sort of took me some of the inspiration for this latest book, uh, The Royal Rebel, uh, coming out from Barrington Stoke. Again, uh, a tale from history that, seemingly has been swept under the rug that we should know about but no one has a clue about it do you want to tell me a little bit more about princess sophia sophia's story and, and how you came about to find it and wanting to tell it yeah um actually um she, if she was around she'd tell you off for calling her sophia she always called herself sophia um which is no it's fine it's something i worked out this is the beauty of research is that you you, you think you know something based on a word that you read and then you go no 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 it's always pronounced Sophia um Sophia Dalip Singh was one of the children of a um a gentleman called uh Dalip Singh now Dalip Singh was the last ruler of the Sikh empire his father was a guy called Ranjit Singh and he was one of India's biggest folk heroes you know um unified the Sikh empire and when he died, there was a massive fight for succession, loads of intrigue, betrayal, murders, an entire series of Game of Thrones type novel, types novels in that story alone, um, which I may be going to at some point. Um, so Dalip Singh was uh, five or six years old. By the time he was eight or nine, the British tricked him, uh, took his empire, and he was taken away because he was seen as an emblem for Indian freedom fighters. So he was taken away uh, to Queen Victoria's court. 
and Queen Victoria um, adored him, uh, took him under a wing. He became her favourite. She even had a portrait, an oil portrait, um, commissioned that she hung um, in her private quarters of the Leap Sink. Um, and his uh, eldest son, Frederick, and Sophia, his youngest daughter, became the godchildren of Queen Victoria. So this is a young lady who was Indian descent, brought up um, in Britain, um, born and raised in Britain, and very much part of the aristocracy, you know, had a debut ball, all the rest of that stuff. Um, but secretly watched her father, watched her father deteriorate. Her father became very bitter and very angry about the way he'd been treated, wanted his empire back, and she was influenced by this. And as she grew up, she became a revolutionary. They weren't allowed to visit India for a very long, long time because they were seen as dangerous. And when she first went to India with her sisters, um, she realised quite what her, exactly what her family meant to Indian general, ordinary Indian people um, and became a revolutionary. She became a rebel and then met um, some of the people in the suffragette movement very, very early on and became their suffragette princess. Um, there was a brilliant book by a lady called Anita Arnand um, called the suffragette princess that I used as the basis of my research. Um, so yeah, uh, a very, very, very um, interesting, rebellious um, woman who was a major part, uh, uh, you know, as big a part as anybody of the suffragette movement in this country, um, and whose story has disappeared. I mean, very people know it, but very few people. It's academics and those with a specific interest in either Anglo-Indian history or you know Brit British Indian history or um, journalists and researchers like Anita yeah and it's a story as well at the heart of it I found was quite beautiful there's a, a big family element to it and Sophia actually goes through many stages of trying to understand what um, home means uh, that's quite quite one of the, the testing things and I love the the statement by her mother which is home isn't a place it's a feeling um, beautiful how you to create Sophia's journey into just more than just a, a fight for rebellion but also a fight for identity uh, was it always in your mind that you wanted to create a, a more well-rounded character than just this sort of like rebel rousing sort of princess. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, I found, I'll, I'll be very honest with the listeners. I found it very difficult to be in with because originally I, I didn't have very much sympathy for her loss of prestige and standing in society. Cause I, you know, I'm a, I'm a Republican anyway at the best of times, but I, I just didn't get that side of it. It didn't really appeal to me, but then I started thinking about what she'd lost and what, her family had lost and also comes from exactly the same background as me so my family is Sikh um so those connections came in and it's 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 very difficult sometimes with historical figures you've got to find something that is emotive for you as a writer and for me it was her, her last loss of identity it was her sense that I always had as a kid as well of where you belong do you belong because my family would call me Indian say you're Indian and then I'd feel very British or very English walking around the streets of Leicester um and then I'd occasionally get told by a few racist people to go back to my own country I'm already in my own country and soon as though I put that link in with her it, the story developed from there so it does become about home it does become about what home actually means um and once that emotional arc was in my head it's probably the third draft in if I'm honest you know the first couple of drafts I've got to be honest I don't know many authors that admit to this but they were rubbish utter rubbish you know and you know they are you look at them and then the editor's like oh you know you're like yeah I know I know so um yeah the themes the emotional arc um became the most important thing. The idea that she's a revolutionary and a rebel and all the rest of it was wonderful, but it's why she became those things. That's the most important thing. And I think that's the hook for the book. It's, it is based very, very clearly 
in her actual history. I mean, there's a lot, huge bits missing, but the theme that I wanted to explore most was the idea of being a refugee within your own land, you know, because she is in her own land in England. Uh, she goes to India, she wants to come back, she feels like she's going home, and that understanding of who she is and where she belongs, regardless of what she looks like, becomes a really, really important thing, whether that's 1910, 1925, or 2021. It's We have similar themes within our society right now so you know it kind of ties in yeah it does it feels very present it, even though again it's i think most of the book is set sort of uh the the very late sort of um 19th century and then early 20th century yeah um but what's what's lovely about it is obviously this is barrington stoke book and i know you've done a couple of barrington stoke books before um it's such an easily um digested story because of that and I wonder, uh, your working relationship with Barrington Stoke, do you enjoy writing with Barrington Stoke? And how would you find the process compared to maybe something like uh, Mohinder's War, which I think is Bloomsbury? Yeah, Mohinder's War is Bloomsbury. Uh, Barrington Stoke, I've done loads of books with them. I've been working with them since 2001, which is the year my first longer novel, Unarranged Marriage, was published. So I signed a contract for a book called Dream On um, that I did for them later that year, and it came out the following year, 2002. So I've been working with them for nearly 20 years. And... Um, the process with Barrington Stoke, um, I love. Um, originally, it was much more about the books being uh, being sent out to schools. There was, you know, consultants. I think that's a slightly smaller scheme now. It was much bigger to begin with. I think obviously things change, um, but yeah, the process is wonderful because what happens is is they've never they never tell you to simplify a book. They'll say we need a certain number of words, um, write it. And then you go through an editorial process as normal as you would do with any other publisher, uh, Bloomsbury, uh, Penguin Random House, as I do. And then there's the language edit. Now, it's the language edit where things change, because this is where we start to think about the words that we use and how well those words are read by people who are dyslexic or have some other sort of form of reading difficulty. Um, and the idea is not to patronise people who are dyslexic or people who find reading a little bit more difficult. So you give them the stories. I did one called The Gun, uh, which is very urban, very gritty, very teenage. You know, does pause no punches. It's just it's just simplified the language so it's easier to read. Um, and as somebody who had lots, most of my friends didn't read. Most of my friends didn't read because they didn't enjoy reading, or maybe they were, you know, had dyslexia and it wasn't sort of um, established. They hadn't. It wasn't noticed back in the seventies and eighties. So. Um, I'm, I, I love working for them. They're probably one of my favourite publishers that I've ever worked for. I mean, I've worked with them and Random House or Penguin Random House the longest. So that should say something, you know, 20 years. And I always look forward to getting an email from them, always excited about when they want a new book. Um, and always thinking about ideas for them as well, which I don't do with a lot of other publishers, you know. So, yeah, they're, a, they're an amazing company who, thankfully, when Anthony McGowan, on the Carnegie um, finally you know because Anthony got credit he deserved but so did Barrington Stoke as the publisher and they, I think they've deserved that for a long time they've been doing some amazing work so yeah um, love them oh fantastic no they, they've been really great to the podcast as well they're a brilliant bunch of people the team up there uh, but you've also hinted on my next question there about ideas for new books and uh, wondering sort of looking ahead is there anything in the pipeline that we can expect from you some ideas brewing that you can talk about maybe some things you can't yeah, I mean, one of the things I always said when I started was that I was never, you know, early interviews, I always said I was never going to write a World War II story if I couldn't find something different. So I didn't want to carry on writing the kind of World War II stories that existed. There's nothing wrong with them, but there's so many of them that how do you have a difference? Um, so it took me a long time to get to World War II, you know, nearly 18 years in. So um, 
I'm looking at uh, a sequel to City of Ghosts. City of Ghosts is set in World War One. Uh, the sequel was always going to be called Five Rivers of Blood, and it was always going to end up in World War Two and then Indian independence and then the partition of India in 1947. So there's that. That's developing. It's brewing. It's been brewing ten years, but it's still brewing. Um, I've got a conversation. I had a conversation with my editor um, at Penguin Random House about a couple of new ideas. One is a junior series. Uh, junior into early key stage three so what we call middle grade teenage early teenage um and it's a kind of fantasy series based around um it's kind of based i've got to be honest it's based in conspiracy theories i i ended up watching a load of videos about flat earth theory which is you know ridiculous obviously but some of the sort of notions about you know things people actually believe sort of inspired me and made me think well if what if what if there is a um like a, a, a an ice pack that surrounds where we live and we don't know what's beyond it and what if the earth was seeded which a lot of people um, believe by extraterrestrial beings or by some kind of master and then i started thinking about atlantis and the whole concept of atlanteans and so the book of brilliant things series is this sort of idea that there are a group of guardians that watch over human beings um, and this orphaned girl um, is one of them and doesn't realize it and so yeah that's all developing um i say developing i need to get the, th that together as a proposal by the end of july um and then a um a mega series which um is going to be based around british colonialism um but i don't, don't want to write a straight fiction about british colonialism i wanted to because i want to explore different regions of the world and i don't want to be caught up in a kind of you don't look like these people so you can't write about them but also i loved lord of the rings um as a kid and I love lots of stuff like that, you know, um, swords and sorcery and adventure. So I'm thinking if we take the concept of people invading other lands and the reasons why, and base that on actual colonial events, fictionalize it, add a bit of fantasy and a bit of magic, I think we've got the basis for a fantastic series. So that's the one I'm developing at the moment. That's kind of, that's probably more teenage and young adult, um, but I do have for the younger ones, um, a, a whole new series coming up. Uh, called the uh, Green Patrol. So it's called Halo Green Patrol, and it's about eco-warriors, young eco-warriors, uh, who are led by a 13-year-old billionaire whose parents have gone missing, and they fight against an evil corporation called Titan um, and try to stop them from destroying the world's resources or stealing the world's resources. And it's uh, I'm really excited about it. The covers look amazing. It's really exciting. And that's aimed squarely at Key Stage 2 into early Key Stage 3. So, you know, there's a lot going on. I've always got something going on. So... Yeah, you're not up to much at all. <laughs> no, not a lot, yeah. Just three or four stories that I'm planning at the same time, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I, I commend you for keeping all that spinning. I mean, sometimes you sit there and like, obviously reading a load of books, you go like, oh, what if this? And you think about all these different story ideas, but writing about four or five of them at the same time. <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've had a, for me, a very quiet four or five years, probably a little bit longer. I've been there for various reasons. So my personal life has changed. You know, um, I'm a lone parent with sort of 90% responsibility for my little one who's eight now. Um, and I have a 21 year old. So that changes your perspective and things and kind of the amount of time you have. But also I just took a bit of a backseat. I haven't written a uh, young adult novel uh since i wrote a book called web of darkness so we're talking six years uh probably a little bit longer um and that's not through lack of ideas i just kind of lost a bit of impetus and then things changed in my personal life and then i got really into um 
writing Now or Never and Mahinda's War and then this other series I'm on about. There's another one called Wolf Girl that I forgot about. That's also coming out, actually, um, about a girl who discovers the last wolf in the uh, forest. So, you know, they, I'm having so much fun writing the younger stuff and really pushing myself with the historical stuff rather than what I'm mostly known for, which is real-life drama. Um, um, and it's a lot of fun. It means you can expand yourself and push yourself as a writer, uh, which I always wanted to do. So, you know, um, yeah, even in my quiet years, I've had quite a lot going on. So. Absolutely. Well, it's, it sounds like you're up to a lot. So uh, we have got a lot in this interview, we crammed it full, but uh, we are fast approaching the end, but we're not going to go anywhere until we get to competition time. Yes, it's that time of the show when we talk about our competition. And this week's one is a doozy because we have got a copy of the Royal Rebel for one of you lucky listeners to win. If you want to try and win it, all you have to do is head over to our Twitter at Big Kids Book Club, all one long lovely word. There you're going to hit us up with the hashtag Rebel Comp, Rebel Comp. That's our sort of our hashtag. And this week's quiz question for you to enjoy is obviously Sophia is uh, trying to work out her identity, out what is her home and, and what makes her feel like home. So we wanted to ask you guys, what gives you the feeling of home? It could be family, it could be a place, it could be anything. Uh, we want to know. Uh, so please hit us up with that and your hashtag RebelComp to at Big Kids Book Club. And one of you lucky listeners will win a copy of the Royal Rebel. How's that sound, Bally? Sounds good to me, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to win a copy. <laughs> Absolutely. Where would you where would you say if I was to say uh, what uh, gives you a feeling of home? Uh, what would be your answer? I'm, uh, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons uh, Sophia's mum says what she does um, is that my, I mean, my eldest is not my biological child, so, but um, I kind of gained her as a daughter with my ex-partner and she stayed with me. And the little one has had a real kind of tough time. People do, you know, it's like, you know, it's not violins or anything playing, but it happens. So we started talking to the little one and my, my oldest when we first kind of ended up as we were as a, as a smaller family unit about what home means. And what it means is being together. It means being with the people you love and the people um, who are closest to you. And I think over the last 15 months with the lockdowns, a lot of people have grown. Yes, it's been annoying being stuck with people, et cetera, et cetera. But I think home has taken on a different meaning. Um, um, as in, or it's it's re-energized the concept of home rather than taking on a different meaning. So, but for me, it's wherever, if wherever I am in the world, if I've got my um, daughters with me, um, that's home. So, oh, beautifully put. And so, you please let us know, and we want to know what's important to you and what gives you that feeling of home. So that is our competition for the week, which brings us firmly to the end, unfortunately, of today's interview. Bali, thank you so much for joining us on the show. No problem at all. You're very welcome. It's been a real pleasure. Delight to have been able to join you. Absolutely. Now, before you do disappear on us, I was wondering if you could let our lovely listeners know how they can find out more about you and your books. Is there a website or a social media link they can head to? Yeah, I have a, a, a website that needs finishing um, that I redid that I've got to work on. Actually, you just reminded me. Um, it's ballyrye.co.uk. I'm on Twitter at ballyrye. Uh, on Instagram as well, I think that's rye underscore bally. But you can, you know, if you Google me, you can find me on all those things. Um, always around, um, you know, sometimes disappear from social media, usually because I'm very busy. Um, but yeah, I'm around. And the website is a good place to start. So that or my Twitter feed are probably two places to start. So fantastic well all i have left to do is to thank bally for joining us on the show and for you lovely listeners for enjoying the listening experience i hope to do this again with you but until next time all i have to say is for you to take care to stay safe but most importantly of all to keep on reading <laughs>